0: Thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Lillian Sue, and I'm currently the medical director of the CVICU at Phoenix Children's Hospital. This recording was part of a CVICU luminary series where professionals in our field, nurses, physicians, who have practiced for over 20 years, are asked questions to impart advice for this next generation of professionals. This particular recording is from 2020 and features Dr. Mary McBride of Lurie Children's Hospital interviewing Dr. Paul Kekia at Tetris Children's Hospital. I hope you enjoy.
1: Hello, PCICS community. It is my sincere pleasure to spend uh, some of my afternoon today with Dr. Paul Kekia, my former attending, my colleague and friend. Tell us what your title is these days. What are you up to other than Facebook political connoisseur? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, other than uh, potentially a national security threat, I'm currently now the uh, Associate Section Chief for Critical Care Medicine in charge of business operations and our Executive Committee in charge of business operations and development. And other than that, I'm trying to love life and go cycling a lot and enjoy time.
1: Excellent. Hang out with Leo and Joni and Andrew. Yes. Your people my people. Well, let's jump right in. Um, What piece of dogma did you used to believe and possibly yelled at a trainee or two? Although I truly do not remember you yelling at me ever, (laughs) except that one time, but you weren't yelling at me. You were yelling near me anyway that you no longer believe.
2: Okay. We're going to have to get to that story in a second. So probably that dopamine does anything. Hmm. That would be one of the dogmas. I had such a love affair of dopamine early on, um, and now I cannot tell you the last time in at least the past 10 years that I've even written for dopamine. So that's probably one.
1: But what made you do it?
2: What, change? Why'd you stop? I came here and nobody used it. And so then I started realizing, oh, I don't have to. Yeah. And I think that's probably the biggest, the the dogma issues that I think we all face, which is we get so ingrained in our thought that we're not willing to experiment. And obviously, you know, this isn't randomized controlled trial with an IRB and experimenting each night, but it's, it's more of just how comfortable are you with the knowledge that you have about all the physiology and everything that's going on to say, why don't I not necessarily give another bolus right now? Why don't I not necessarily just reflexively give the laces? What's what's really gonna happen if I'm not if I don't hit that number over the next two hours? Let's just see. And pushing that boundary a little, because now we are um, and I'm sure it's it's the same for you, intolerant of imperfection yeah. as a as an entire entity. And that's, that's a depressing thing that leads to a lot of dogma because if you're trying to get perfection that you can't ever get, then um, you will force yourself into doing things and, and reflexively trying to avoid an imperfection. Right? Chasing a number. Yep. Oh, God, yeah. We go on for that forever. Mm-hmm. That's probably the other dogma thing is that, that numbers matter more than just the trends and the, the general gestalt of what's going on. I guess also how many times have you and I were sitting in the ICU in in St. Louis hitting refresh on the stupid Epic or McKesson button thing, waiting for the next lactate to pop up as if that was going to be everything. If the lactate goes down, the only thing about the lactate going down was I got to leave and go home. Right. Uh, That was the only thing. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, did it really matter?
1: Probably not. No. It was a probably type B lactate acid anyway. Yes. What advice would you give your younger self at the beginning of your career?
2: Care less about what other people think about you and care more about what you think of yourself. Live up to your own standard. Don't worry about anybody else. Um, But be exceedingly demanding of yourself. If you're honest, I mean, you and I have had so many conversations. Everybody in this field have had so many conversations about trying to make up for what somebody said about your decision or about the way you acted or about the way you, you ran an event or whatever. And, uh, the healthiest thing I've ever done is to step back and go, okay, wait a minute, in all honesty, did I do something wrong? And if I can say no, then I just go, well, it's their psychosis and just move on. But I have to be honest with myself. And there have been so many times where I'm like, "No, nah, I died. That was not my best moment. And if you can be honest with yourself about that, careers are much uh, more fruitful with that. Sure.
1: The educator in me wants to push back a little bit because there's evidence to suggest that we are all terrible at self-assessment.
2: Oh, I'm sure. I, I'm not saying that, that that's harder. That's, that's actually harder than diving in as a true m M&M. and It's the actual self-assessment. And I don't know that I do it well, but I, I do it to keep me healthy.
1: Describe your worst night on call in the CICU. Any CICU. The worst night.
2: Any night that you were my fellow.
1: <laughs> Whatever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Literally every night you were my fellow. Um, You're welcome. Actually, it was. You were not on, but uh, it was still in St. Louis. and. That was the night that we ended up putting two kids on ECMO, declaring one kid brain dead, and then a shunt clotted uh, on a Norwood. All in one evening.
1: Hello, that night, but not the CICU fellow. Because I think I helped you with the, the Tet shunt clot on the floor.
2: That, yes. Then you were the, see? So I, it goes back. It's you. It's
1: you. <laughs> By the way, that's
2: another piece of advice. It's, it's, it's a healthier to just, you know, put it on the fellow. Uh, no, yeah, that was, that was not, but you know, it's interesting. So let me ask you, do you remember specific like names of patients and things like that?
1: Sometimes.
2: See, I don't. And, I, and when you sent me that question about what's the worst night, um, they're starting to sort of just blend together. So I can only remember sort of feelings and knowing that there was something bad, but I can't pick the exact patient night ratio kind of thing.
1: I definitely remember disease processes and events significantly more than I remember names.
2: Yeah, it's probably a protective mechanism on my part.
1: I I think on all of our parts.
2: Yeah, yeah, Uh, definitely.
1: A couple of years for me after um, my daughter was born and we were really short-staffed and volumes were going up kind of all at the same time, I refer to that time in my life as the fog. I actually, like Kiona will mention like, oh, this kid and that night. And I'll be like, pro oh, recollection of that event. And yeah. I do think it was self-protective.
2: Yeah. But I think it does actually have to speak to us as a profession and a subspecialty that there, that each one of us has periods where we describe it as the fog. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not healthy. That's not healthy. I know based on workload, um, I have no doubt that years of my life were shortened Mm -hmm. at the tail end, right? Because of the amount of nights and stress and work. And that, we, we haven't figured that one out yet. We've come pretty close here uh, I, I think we're, our schedule allows that to be pretty close. Um, but, um, it's not good that we, we can both share a description of the fog. Okay. That's just not right. That's not right. No.
1: Well, and it, you know, it really kind of drives me crazy when there's all this attention, so-called attention on wellness. And yet it, it's fake because it isn't addressing the actual problem. It's, you know, like I, you know, there there are memes and all kinds of things on social media about you can't yoga your way out of this. And yes, I'm all all for people doing yoga. I'm all for for, um, (laughs) exercise and anything that makes you feel good. But like, there has to be systematic change for this to be really a career long process for people. There aren't a lot of old intensivists around, do you know?
2: No, no, Uh, and- You're the oldest one? (laughs) 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 yeah but in my mind i'm i'm 24 but um and i probably act like it but uh you know there is both the physical and the sort of emotional stress you know toll Um, and i think we can do pretty well with the physical um in terms of just arranging the schedule and coverage models Um, but i don't Mm -hmm. think anybody's addressing the combination that comes with the emotional toll of it every single day, you know. Ron and I talk about this all the time when it comes to job security. The length, the number of people who want to sign up to take care of dying children in the middle of the night is a pretty short list, right? And uh, it I think it's getting shorter every day. Um, so we've got to figure out a way to make it that we have safety nets. But I don't know how. I don't. I really don't know how.
1: What do you believe is the greatest accomplishment for the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care in the past 20 years? And what do you hope will be its greatest accomplishment 20 years from now?
2: So, uh, in all honesty, I think VADS and the way we take care of heart failure is Mm -hmm. probably the biggest thing. I mean, I remember as a fellow, uh, literally having no options for a heart failure patient, um, you weren't gonna put them on ECMO for a month or two months. You just you know, kept them intubated and kept cranking up the inotropes and then you muscle relaxed them and then you cranked it up some more and then you finally talked to the parents that there was nothing available. So that is um, an enormous accomplishment um, because now we have an end game that we can get out with a bat. And I think that probably then goes to the next thing of the next 20 years, which is being able to truly have an implant fully implantable artificial heart um, that would alleviate the need for transplantation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can just pick it off a shelf and just go with it. Um, I think that would be amazing because that would also open up the possibility to say, why go down the, the pathway of palliation of, you know, stage one, two, and Fontan? We can just say, oh, well, just every six months, maybe we'll just Put in a new VAD, but it's basically that's your heart for the rest of your life and be done with it. Um, there, there is that potential.
1: That doesn't sound like the syncardia. That doesn't need anticoagulation.
2: Correct. Correct. <laughs> that that and is and is truly internal, so that you don't have a drive line coming out. Um, and God knows I am not an engineer, so I don't know how to do that. But there's got to be somebody thinking about that.
1: Uh, wait to see it. Yeah. What was the best piece of advice or comment that a patient's family ever gave or said to you?
2: So when you said me that, that one was easy, actually, because I remember it, um, as if it's still happening right now. Um, it was, the story goes that, um, this was a kid, I was a picky fellow and, you know, the kid had, um, I, uh, ITP and came in with a platelet count of like two, right? And shouldn't have bled into their head, right? Because they always say, well, you know, they don't they don't have spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Well, this kid did and showed up in the ER with a blown pupil and we did the whole thing. And then of course uh, neurosurgery, by the way, the neurosurgical fellow, because I never saw a neurosurgical attending at that time, took the kid to the OR even though it was, you know, I fought for that kid to go to the OR because they're like, "Well, we can't." So we were jamming in platelets while they were opening up and all this. Rocky course, rocky course. You know, you roll, you go off service, maybe a research month, whatever. You kind of lose sight of, of where the kid went. Um, and then, this was towards the end of my fellowship uh in fact i think it may have been one of the last couple of weeks that i was still in the hospital and i was post-call and i'm standing at the uh nurse's desk there in the old children's memorial and come in doors open up and this woman comes and walks straight up to me i'm like okay she starts talking to me says you don't remember me do you i said no not at all i'm sorry Said, she tells a story, well, you took care of my child, yet, you know, bleeding in his head. And then it started coming back. Yeah. And then she said, um, I just dropped him off for his first day of kindergarten today.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: Said, she goes, I don't remember a single word you said to me that night, but I remember looking in your eyes and knowing you cared. And that was the most important lesson I ever knew, that if your heart is in the right place, allow yourself to be vulnerable. Parents don't want to hear, well, you know, we measure the QP and the QS is this, and so we're going to, they don't care. They don't care. Just talk to them. And uh, as long as you care, this job will be fine. So it's not advice. It was more of the most important thing they ever said.
1: Well, that is what I had for you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: We'd like to thank Dr. McBride and Dr. Kekia for that enjoyable interview. To all our listeners, thank you again for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know About Grapes was used under Creative Commons attribution license.